Amen. Remain standing for the reading of the text this morning found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. This one verse, which is filled with mystery. Now hear the word of God. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would just part back a little bit more of the glass that we see through darkly, make it a little more clear. Even though we study around and think about the edges, we pray that the center would become more clear. We pray that the Spirit would take this message and increase our love for you, that we might have a greater confidence in those promises that we believe, that you've given us to trust as we live our lives in obedience to the gospel. We pray that the feast around the supper would be especially sweet this day in the light of the truth that is before us in the mystery of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm actually bringing a, a message for us to understand a little more of a mystery that is incomprehensible and cannot be understood. You see my conundrum. Speaking on the mystery of the sacraments. And in bringing a message on a mystery, I confess that I feel rather inadequate and inept to speak on truths that I do not fully comprehend. How would you feel if you had to come up here and, and help people to understand something that you yourself don't understand? And that's part of the challenge. But yet in it, there is a, a wonderful truth. Many truths that continue to luster and to shine and as we continue to see with greater clarity from glory to glory the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. The message is not so much to explain a mystery that cannot be explained, but to stimulate our minds, and yet not just our minds, but our hearts to the degree that the sensible mysteries of God become more appreciated and very special to us. Before us on the table is bread and wine. We have water over there. We have the sacraments today, which in the Bible themselves itself calls these mysteries. And yet the word of God, which calls them mysteries, is the only way that we can begin to appreciate more about them and what they are. So it is inseparable from the very mysteries to which they reveal so what we do is we study around these profound mysteries according to the truth that God has given to us. We, we look upon the edges the best we can to hopefully uh, comprehend with our hearts all the more the fullness of the Godhead in Christ. And today is really a, word, a day of word and sacrament. With an infant baptized already this morning in an adult baptism waiting in the balance for the afternoon and the Lord's Supper in between. What a, what a great, mysterious sandwich we have today to feast upon the goodness of God. 
The Apostle Paul, in his letter to his young pastor, Timothy, spoke of the mystery of godliness in this third chapter of this pastoral epistle. And as the mystery of godliness is is profound and yet revealed in some form here, we have God becoming flesh, being manifested actually is more truthful. God was manifested in the flesh. And being made like God, that is what he is doing with us. Oh, not in the sense that we are becoming deity, but in the terms of being restored in that image of God in which he originally created us, And in the character of God that enjoys full fellowship with him. There is the mystery based upon the second person of this Godhead. And here Paul speaks of the person of Christ. And first of all, he expresses both of the natures of Christ, when he declares at the same time that Christ is fully God and fully man. Second, he points out the distinction between these two natures when on the one hand he calls him God, and then on the other he expressly says manifested in the flesh. The second person of the Godhead that we know now personally as Jesus, the Messiah, Christ, is not some third hybrid when you cross deity with humanity. He is fully God and fully man, unique in his person, and in a single person exists in two distinct natures unlike anyone we know other than himself. Fully with God's nature, not anything less than God, he did not leave deity behind or empty himself of deity when he clothed himself fully in flesh. He always has been and will be and fully always is the Alpha and Omega, God from the beginning to the end and all of eternity, He is the self-existent God. And yet, that nature is also found in a person in which the entire human nature is in one person. Jesus Christ, one person, two distinct natures, not mingled or mixed with each other, but distinct and always is. Third, he asserts here the unity of the person when he declares it is the one and selfsame God who is the one that is manifested in the flesh. There is only one God. There is not three gods. Only one, and that's mysterious. And there's something here in the incarnation of Jesus Christ that we do not fully comprehend And even in the Trinitarian God of being one God, yet existing in three persons, it's mysterious, but it's truth. 
It's revealed, and we believe it. Our faith is not limited by our understanding. There is such a wideness in the difference between God and man, between the creator and the creature. Yet in Christ we have a great gulf in the the, the chasm between the creator and the creature that is bridged. A person who is fully God and fully man, who is both creator and adorned in creaturely likeness and full humanity, the mystery takes on a profound mysteriousness when we further consider time and eternity. We have eternal God, the creator that stands outside of time and space, who was the creator of it all. And speaking from our perspective of this mysteriousness of God, he exists in another dimension. He's transcendent. He's unapproachable and clothed in inapproachable light. He is holy in the only unique sense that never can we be. He is holy in his own character, meaning he is separate from all of his creation. He is distinctly separate There's another sense of holiness in which we do share in that communicable attribute of God himself in the purity and the the light, but not in the transcendent character of God and his holiness. There's something completely unknown and incomprehensible about him to us. Yet the one who is divine partook of humanity precisely so that we who are human might partake of his divinity. And this great exchange, as some have called it, may seem presumptuous or outrageous. Can we human beings dare to hope that we can be so transformed and enter into a new reality that we see Christ's triumph over death? Resurrection of Jesus Christ is that unique act in which there is an intersection of of time and space with eternity. The resurrection is a means in which God reveals another dimension of existence working right in our very midst. The transcendence of God has become a little more imminent. And he is imminent and he loves his creatures and his creation and he's intimately involved in every little detail and molecule and atom that is vibrating today and transcendent far above and beyond and separate from it all. This is a mystery. When you focus on the one without the other, We become, and we take God down to a place in which he does not exist. We put him up in a place that is not him at all. And here is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a fuller revelation of God himself in the Godhead. It is that 
unique act where eternity breaks into time and enters into space and forever bridges the gap between these two things that we cannot comprehend. And in it, God reveals another dimension of existence working in our very midst. He was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, the book of Revelation says. Now, if you can explain that and understand that you come talk to me and teach me and you help me to understand the mysteriousness of the Lamb which was slain before the foundation of the world. And you'll begin to understand the difficulty that I have in preaching such mysterious truth, but profound and so relevant and applicable to us that even that promise that we focused on from Matthew 6.33 today becomes a new reality in our lives as we not only seek first the kingdom of God, not worrying about anything else, but the very promises of God that he has given to us, claimed by faith, brings that which is future into our very present reality to the extent that we do not have to worry. And if you can get your hands and minds and hearts about this mystery a little bit more, you will begin to understand the reality of the promises of God that are available to you. We walk by faith today, not by sight. The Lord's incarnation and life and victory over sin and death is a demonstration of the divine presence in a world that we have viewed from way too limited of a perspective. This is a world that has to be viewed in, through more than just a telescope or under a microscope in the laboratory. After the resurrection, we, we are to look at the reality through an entirely different lens. The lens of God is extraordinarily powerful in the presence, in His presence in the midst of sin and death. And yet we have Christ among us today. The Word of God is what reveals unto us these profound truths so that the mystery is not one that we can be ignorant of, nor should we be lackadaisical in studying this mystery, even though our minds will not comprehend it fully. But we study it and we look around the edges like Paul did in the 15th chapter of Corinthians, the first Corinthians of the letter that he's writing to them. And he's, he's writing in the 15th chapter. He, he's talking for 50 verses about the fact of the resurrection about the truthfulness of Christ's resurrection, and therefore the truthfulness of our resurrection. And for 50 verses, he's talking around the edges until he finally comes to 51, and he says, Lo, I tell you a mystery. I can tell you some things. I can comprehend some things. But I'm revealing to you something more profound than your mind can take in. Luke gives us an account of the mysteriousness of the resurrection when Christ dined with two of the disciples on which he was on the road to Emmaus with, and their hearts were burning inside, and he comes to the table, and as he finally breaks bread, it says their eyes were open and they understood anew it was the Lord. 
Immediately he vanishes, evaporates from sight. The two disciples run back to Jerusalem and they tell their disciples and immediately Christ is in the presence. And they all thought it was a ghost. But to prove he wasn't, he said, handle me, look at the scars, touch me, give me something to eat. And he ate with them. He passed through closed doors and locked doors, showing that he was not merely a resuscitated corpse. No. He was not merely a resuscitated corpse. He ate with them, showing that he was no ghost. He now exhibits to their eyes something more of a mystery of being both fully man and fully God. And the resurrection gave the followers of Jesus a new understanding of God's presence among them. A new dimension to the promise that Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And eternity enters into the dimensions of time and space. And reality is not one that can be quantified in terms of laboratories or found in empirical evidences or related to or boiled down to a mathematical formula or a scientific equation. That will only go so far. But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only did God make everything in this world right, but it is a significant revelation to us. It is a new lens through which we see and understand the reality of the world. And the resurrection was a kind of cosmic explosion, as one man put it, that reverberated in all directions, and it gave the followers of Jesus a new understanding of the present, but also the past and also the future. You can think about eternity now touching in all quarters of the dimensions of our existence in time and space, but we exist also now in eternal life with Jesus Christ. And from our perspective, it appears that the incarnation of Jesus and His death and His subsequent res resurrection were new things. And they were indeed historic. But in God's view... The resurrection was not something innovative, but something rather restorative. No glory could have been further added to the second person of the Godhead that he did not already have before he became incarnate. He wasn't being added to any further of the dimensions of the Godhead. The glory that he had before already belonged to him and he had it after as well. The resurrection is not something newly added to Jesus, but something newly made evident to us. As one author put it before the resurrection, we understand Jesus in human terms. But now at least we get a glimpse of that which is grander than mortals could have ever imagined before or can get into articulate with mere words. It is in this living Jesus who before all things and through whom are all things 
all things consists. Now, what does that have to do with the sacraments? And I would say everything. Jesus is a mystery, but he's a truth. He's a reality, and we must believe. The sacraments have everything to do with the mystery of Jesus and in themselves are called mysteries and become mysterious. Mystical is something that we cannot fully explain. Mysticism, however, is a whole worldview that is something completely contrary to orthodox belief. We are and have mystical things about our faith, things that we cannot all understand, and these are mysteries. But the sacraments before us, the water and the baptism and the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, are actions that communicate far beyond words. In this post-enlightenment, rationalistic era in which so permeates our culture and our own thinking, we think reality can be understood in terms of intellectual formulas. And indeed, there are lots of things that we do understand in our mind, but the sacraments or sacred mysteries that Christ himself instituted where the word goes on being flesh. I'm reminded in Ephesians chapter 1 when he speaks of the church and the mysteries of the church that he comes out to say in chapter 3, he says about Christ being the head of the church, which is his body. And what he is revealing to his people through this word of the Spirit, through Paul to the church, on the doctrine of the church, is that the church, the body of Christ, is the physical manifestation of Jesus on this earth. And he is so inseparably united together with his church that even to give a glass of cold water to the least of these his saints is as if you did it to him as head and body. It was the resurrected Christ that made himself known in the breaking of the bread. The sacraments are signs and seals that identify us with the risen Lord. And in the symbol, we have a representation of a reality beyond what our natural eyes can see. Bread, wine, and water. They are symbolic but address us in our realm in which we dwell. And yet they point to and relate to and identify something far beyond our present physical world into a spiritual reality and grace that they are actually identifying. And in the right participation of the symbol, there is participation in the very reality of the symbol of what the symbol represents. And in doing so, there is a communication expressed to us beyond what words can ever offer. It's a participation in life. 
And let's think about baptism for a few minutes, and then we'll think about the Lord's Supper as we think about these mysteries. And we will leave this message wanting. We will leave it not understanding and perhaps with more questions than we do have answers. But I trust we leave it with a greater appreciation for who we are in Christ, the risen Lord. As we consider the scriptural narrative regarding baptism, we consider in the Exodus that we've already alluded to of how God delivers his people out of bondage and he brings them through the Exodus and through the parting of the Red Sea in which Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 was the baptism that they went through into a new life. And the God's people of old that was relieved from the life of bondage and entered into a new promised land as they went through those waters of baptism were reflecting upon even the primal waters back in Genesis 1 where the narrative there tells us of the waters that separate and going through the waters that brings creation into existence. Baptism is a picture of going through the waters into a new life of existence. That is why it is called a new creation. There are new heavens and a new earth. And behold, if you are in Christ, you become a new creature. And all things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. In Matthew 10, 22, Jesus was asking his disciples about baptism. And he asked them after the picture of John's baptism in the water that Jesus went through, where the Spirit of God comes upon him and he enters into his public ministry empowered now with the Spirit of God, and they already have a picture of waters and baptism. And now Jesus asks his disciples, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? In that moment, somewhat ignorantly, they answered, yes, Lord. And he somewhat in a knowing fashion, very ignorant to them of what they just nodded to, says, you will. He was speaking about the baptism of the death that he must enter. The death that was right around the corner. It identifies with the death of Jesus. And so Paul picks up in the theology of the sixth chapter and he says there, Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, if we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father... Even so, we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now that's a mystery as well. God's people become something new. Through baptism, there's a new identity. This identity comes from the union that person has with Jesus Christ. In some mysterious way, Paul explains that by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, when he died, we somehow were there with him on the cross and we died with him. 
And by virtue of that, when he rose from the dead, we, by virtue of our union with him, were somehow mysteriously with him as he rose from the dead. And so we now walk in newness of life. In the resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized, that past becomes a present reality. That's how Paul is addressing this. That's why it's mysterious. Time and eternity come together in the resurrected Christ. And that which is past becomes a, a reality in our present and because of these profound truths, a baptized person then is to reckon himself dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. And that is how the chapter goes on to exhort. And he then takes that reckoning as a call of faith and he appeals for faith even on the basis of baptism. Baptism is not the end of someone in their life's journey and as they go and they get baptized and they can just sit back in the pew and relax. No, it is the time of a beginning of a new creation that they are continuing to be instruments of righteousness and reckoning the old life dead and living a life in fullness of the life of Jesus Christ himself. And therefore carrying out his mission in the world because all authority has been given unto him. Go ye therefore and be my hands and feet and you are now embodied with the power. And then we come to the Lord's Supper. And in like manner as the sacrament of baptism, the bread and the wine, take the past and even the future, and they meet us right here in the present. The word remember, as you might remember, is a word theologically that does not simply mean call to mind, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This do in remembrance of me. It is a theological word of taking those things that you recall to your mind, knowing the truth of the scriptures, and bringing them right into your present experience. To remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, is to bring something into your present experience of what God has done with this day, and that you are active in this remembrance. It's not a passive calling of mind. And in this remembrance, it's taking the past and bringing it into the present reality in your, own, in your own experience. You're tasting of an eternal God who is now united together with you and you with Him. The life that you live, you no longer live, but the life you live, it is the Christ who lives in you. As you are united together with Christ, you rejoice in his joy, you share in his goodness, you taste of his good things, and you enjoy things together with him, and the glory that he is now in, you now have a taste of that through your union with Jesus Christ. But words cannot just merely express these things and communicate these things. This truth of which our union is with Christ are now further expressed and communicated to us far beyond what words can say in the sacraments. It's a communication to the heart. 
the grapes that the children of Israel ate in the wilderness that they got from the promised land and brought back. It was an anticipation of their inheritance. And their being then was strengthened with that sustenance here from something over there. And so the Lord's Supper by the presence and the life of Jesus is not just a defeat of the evil and the sin and death in our lives, of that it is, but it is more than that. It is the sustenance to go on to accomplish His mission in the world with a view of that future fulfillment and consummation. It's the essence of the Lord's Supper which enables God's people to go and be the new creation type people, the new creation people. To be the salt and the light and empowered in that same power of the resurrection that raised up Jesus from the dead has been given to you by virtue of your union with Jesus. The bread and the wine identify us and unite us into his death and to his resurrection. We are to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, as he says in John 6. But he's speaking spiritually. The bread stays bread. It doesn't change into the body of Christ and thereby, no. It's a symbol, but the symbol is tied to the reality to which it is linked. And if we come worthily and eat of it properly as worthy recipients, the very thing that is identifying is given to us. And Christ is full with us. In it we appropriate, as one author says, the reality of the great past redemptive events and also anticipate the physical reality, the redemptive events that are to come. And when the earth is full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, we can taste that today. In this participation of Christ's body and blood, the church is the body of Christ and the word continues in flesh here among the people of this earth. As united to Christ, he continues to do his work through his church and his mission united inseparably to them. As a husband and wife become one flesh, and so Christ and His church become one, and the sacraments are that which gives us the sense more so of the very realities of these eternal truths that are mysteries that cannot be fully and intellectually understood. They evoke our senses and they address our heart and emotions in ways that we cannot understand. Like it gripped me emotionally this morning in a way that my mind just didn't know what was going on. But the whole body was caught up in a baptism of a baby, which was not even my baby or not even my grandson. But it was Christ, and I'm Christ, and it was part of my family. That's what the sacraments do. They communicate something that the words are going to fail to express. And they're going to address the emotions and the whole heart of man in ways in which our minds will fall short. And yet, it uses our minds. It's not a word against sacrament. It's both and. And 
As we go from the Lord's Supper and participating in the very life of Christ himself, we go with the energy that Christ has bid us to go to do his mission here. There's going to be a time when he calls you home and you're no longer part of the earthly mission here for this season. But when he does, you will see him as he is and you will feast for him with him around the table in a a whole new way. So we leave from here, we leave from the embodiment, if you will, and the sacraments and the signs and the seals of, of the life of Christ filled with his nourishment partaking of the very sap that flows from the vine into the branches. And we leave from here to go feed the hungry and take care of the widows and the orphans and disciple the nations to minister to those in need. We are the embodiment in the hands and the feet of him with the power of the Spirit to be successful and to triumph over everything, including death. See, these things are, in a sense, already ours. God already looks down upon his people whom he has justified, who he has called and chosen and justified, and he looks down upon them and he uses the word glorified in the past tense. Who are glorified. The future becomes a certain reality in our present experience by faith. Faith is the evidence of that stuff we don't see. It's something that is the receiving arms of what's his great gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uniting us together into him where life is. That's why we can go out as a new creature. And corporately speaking, we are new creation people that we go out and live redemptively And we are salt and light as Jesus was light. We now are light. Through the sacraments, God's people participate in the the life and the mission of Jesus. And those who worthily receive the sacraments are united into his life, into his death, into his resurrection. And even we taste of glory where we are seated now in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. As Peter would say, as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given unto us exceeding and great precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. There's so many divine promises that he's given to you. And the promise is to be received by faith. And when you receive the promise by faith, it is as if it is done. You trust in the Lord. And our faith will waver. But God's promises will never fail. As Paul would say, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So this morning, as we think about the mystery of God, the mystery of the Godhead, and the mystery of the incarnate God and Jesus Christ existing in both full humanity and and deity, as we know he has come and The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And then he dies upon the cross and he arose again victoriously on the third day. 
really and historically. And then he ascended back on high and he sends the Spirit upon the people of God, uniting them with himself, empowering them to continue the mission until he has put all of his enemies under his footstool. We, the people of God, have the sustenance of our Lord Christ. And we can feed upon him today in the mysteries of the sacrament. So let us thank God for who we are in Christ and take heed to our identity, and to reckon ourselves indeed dead unto sin, but alive unto God. And now let us feast upon Christ and enjoy our sacred union with him in this mysterious and wonderful meal. Our gracious Father, as the psalmist says, your thoughts are high, and we cannot attain unto them. They are mysterious and glorious. You've revealed yourself in wonderful ways that address us in all of who we are and how you've made us mind, body, soul, spirit. And you've condescended to our lowly estate in this fallen sin-rent world, in this dark place to bring light and to bring life where death pervaded the entire planet. And thankful are we for that wonderful work that you have done for us in Christ, even where the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, where we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and in some mysterious sense united to him from the foundation of the world. And in time, as these matters are worked out in your covenant of grace, we come to appreciate all the more of what you have done for us and the love that you have for us and the sacraments and means of grace you give to us that we can fellowship with our God and enjoy eternal life. And how thankful we are, O Lord, that you saved us and redeemed us. We ask that as we meet around your table now that we would come as worthy recipients, that we would come discerning the body of Christ that we would come reflecting upon who he is and what he has done. And as we trust ourselves into his care, we pray that as we eat and drink, we would do so to the nourishment of our soul in such a way that we might know the sensible presence of God with us this day. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.